0: And welcome again to the Trialled and Tested podcast. This episode is a bit of a departure from the normal format in that it's more of an interview. An interview with the outgoing Chief Executive of the Education Endowment Foundation, Kevin Collins, or rather Sir Kevin Collins, knighted for Services to Education in 2015, a degree in Economics and Politics, PhD in Literacy Acquisition it sounds like an introduction for a panel member for University Challenge, Um, appeared on the Channel 4 documentary for Undercover Boss and the fifth of six sons in his family. Does that mean you're quite competitive? Yes. Yeah. So welcome to the podcast, uh, Sir Kevin. Great. Do you mind if I call you Kevin? Absolutely, of course. Okay. So before we talk about your work over the last eight years at the EEF, please tell us a bit about your background. What did you do prior to joining the EEF? So um, I often describe
1: myself as a teacher because um, I think the first job I ever did as a full-time proper profession was teaching and I loved it and uh, it, I found it thrilling and I'd always wanted to do it. So I started as a teacher in East London about 37 years ago. I taught in East London, taught in Yorkshire, taught abroad internationally um, and that was a big bit of my background. I think that sort of defines a great deal about who I am. Um, I was very fortunate to move out of schools, and I had leadership roles in schools, move out of schools into uh, sort of advice work really, I got, I got the opportunity to train to be a reading recovery tutor, which was a programme set up by the government to support children failing to learn to read. And I did that for a while, became chief advisor of schools in Bradford, uh, moved to the national strategies under Tony Blair in 97, became the London regional director, became the national director for the primary strategies as a whole. Uh, English and Mass and the rest that was an unbelievable time went back to Tower Hamlets where I started teaching as direct, first director of children's services there, became chief exec of the council there and then came to the EF, that's the story
0: Right, you've had a few jobs there, um, so the EF was launched in July 2011 and you joined as CEO in October that year what were you tasked with doing when you were appointed into the job eight years ago?
1: Well, basically to um, develop a start-up. I mean, when I arrived, there were three of us in the room. We were, we were three people milling about, wondering if the phone would ever ring. The one thing we did have was a decent bank account of £125 million. Pounds. And we had an idea, uh, although a very nascent idea, actually, about the idea that you could apply an evidence framework to understand more about what works and what doesn't, particularly to raise the standards for most disadvantaged kids in England. We had the toolkit. Well, we actually had a small toolkit at eleven pages of, of PDF documents. All it was at the time, and we got to work. We got to work building the um, existing evidence, the synthesis, making the toolkit much deeper, richer, and broader with our colleagues, particularly the colleagues up at Durham. Um, and that's become, I think, a pretty much a world leader in its type of its type. It's not, and that's now translated in many languages all around the world. We then um, opened our doors to ask people to to apply for the funding, so we could test things out we that got going from the first round of grants we did the first four that summer I started um, and then we moved into the mobilisation of evidence the dissemination the really hard graft of it all so the task was to get the to get the programme to get the organisation up and running from scratch and I'd never done a startup before I'd worked in big public services local governments government and I found startup absolutely thrilling I loved it I've loved it and um and it's been um, one of the really great joys of my life. That, yeah,
0: this this period. It's funny to think of the EF as a startup, but of course it once was eight years ago. Yeah. Um, so at that time, in your opinion, what was the appetite for research and impact evidence in schools, local authorities, in government? As ever,
1: for me, it's a huge. It's mostly about luck and a very little bit of kind of skill and wit. So the luck was, at the time, that there was um, a desire for knowledge and information. There was a realization that um, in the fragmentation of the system, um, it wasn't very clear who you could turn to and who you could trust. It all became obsessed with um, structures and ideologies. And so for us to present ourselves as non-aligned, non-ideological, an honest broker of what we know and what we don't know, um, people came to it. People, I think, welcomed that, um, that kind of idea and that one that was totally dedicated to classrooms and teaching and not to structures, uh, which was the dominant kind of idea of the day in education. We know that makes no difference at all. So um, the, the, the luck was that we, we, we got going in the right time and people came towards that. So the appetite was for a, a kind of voice. An honest and non-aligned and non-ideological voice but also um, there was I think a realization that education was is more susceptible to knowing than we think and and with the slight politicization of education people I think as well we fed a vein you know we we mind a vein that said actually we should own this teachers the profession should own the knowledge and how can we empower you to have the knowledge so that you can determine you know your decisions, your children's needs, all the rest of it, without being told what to do.
0: Yeah. So, what have um, when you were tasked in 2011 with essentially being um, a, a voice, a, a broker, an impartial broker of, of, dare I say, what what works yeah. or, or or impact evidence? What has the EF done in the last eight years? Yeah. To, to achieve this from where you started from and, and right through to I, now? I remember when
1: I had the interview for the job to become CEO I, 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 one of the things I said that I still th- turns out to be um, useful it's interesting remembering those things um, was that the brand this brand of trust this brand of, um, of transparency um, was fundamental to this work not to the organisation, but to the work, to the broader idea that education is thought about as an evidence-based profession. Um, And the one thing we've done, and the thing I'm most proud of is protect that brand and build it. And the trust that I think uh, people have in us and in the messages we present is the most uh, important achievement. Because, Trust is hard to, you know, yeah. there's, there's, a, there's a famous adage, you know, trust arrives on foot and it leaves on horseback. Le- earning it's really hard. And of course, you know, I remember standing in lots. In the first six months, we just spent time talking to thousands and thousands of our teachers. It was literally shoe leather up and down the country. I remember I say to them, well, you know, my first three questions used to be, who tells you what to do? And what basis do they tell you? And does it serve all children well? They should be the questions you ask. And why should you trust me? I have to earn it. Don't trust me. Let me prove it to you. Uh, let me, don't give it away, make it hard for me. And, um, and, and that's been important. So I think we've won the trust and we've won it the hard way around, not by compliance, yeah. not by being have the authority to tell people what to do. There's far too much nodding and not enough knowing. So the thing I'm proud of is we've got the trust, we've got the brand, but we've, worked, we've earned it the hard way, not the easy way.
0: And so, what's been the sort of evolution, if you like, of the EF over that time? That's the cornerstone, what you just described of, of making the EF work. But what what's sort of happened in those eight years? What's I, I progression think
1: been? I think a couple of things. The first was you have this idea of evidence and trust, but you also have to anchor that to a purpose. So the purpose is not just. Um, in the round about education, but the purpose is about uh, a fundamental issue our our generation of teachers face, which is the achievement of disadvantaged children. I I believe that to be the the challenge of our generation of educators. And so we were able to anchor around that. So that was also a rallying post, which most teachers, I believe, are deeply committed to social justice. And they see that as a, a sort of legitimate thing to focus on and attend to. So the evolution went around there being a policy in the pupil premium that allowed us to hook on mm. and say, here's a, here's a legitimate question. How do you spend that money? Um, and we know we can spend it well or badly. So it's legitimate for us to hook onto that policy and say, how do we together think better about how we spend that money? The second hook was one that went, we know that in England, we have some of the best schools in the world. And I believe that. I don't think we have a broken system. We have a good system. Mm-hmm. It's just not good enough for everybody. Yeah. How do we learn from the best in our own country? This is the reference here. Um, we hooked onto that. So we had to learn from each other, therefore we had to have mechanisms to do that. How do you learn? You learn by evaluation. Well, what's the, how does evaluation really work? What is good evaluation? We locked into randomized control trials. We locked into this much more um, focus on the counterfactual or experimental methods. People began to understand the value of that. And then the final bit of the, um, I remember we've, we had our first trials back where the result was negative or nil. Mm. That actually turned out to me to be gold dust. Yeah. Because then you were able to say to people, this is why you have to do it like this. We would have never learned this knowledge about, about, um, about particular programs if we hadn't measured the counterfactual. And this was a revelation to people that you could, you could control and you could see what happened if you didn't give someone something as well as just assume that because you had everything that was good in the world. And I think we move slowly into appreciation that this is a legitimate way to find things out. And I've been amazed and uh, deeply impressed by the way the profession has come towards that um, approach to thinking about what it does. But it is a quiet revolution. You know, as Paul Connolly's done the work at Belfast. And, um, in the days before the EEF I think in the decade before there were like literally less than a handful of RCTs Yeah. we've now done 200 one in two schools in England well over a million children uh, have a, so don't, no one needs to tell me that teachers aren't, involved, aren't, aren't interested in research they've gone out of their way to allow these things to happen yeah. um, and that's a great testament to us I think this a profession
0: you've already mentioned what you're most proud of um, but what's been much harder than you first expected? Well, the hard, the
1: hard bit turns out to be the, um, the mobilization of knowledge. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of delicious irony that in a profession that's deeply engaged in knowledge, we find it hard to learn from each other. Mm. You, we like to talk about teaching. We like to talk about children's learning. We actually find it hard as adults and as a system to learn from each other. There's still, I think, a tendency to think that the, the water's different this side of the river. Um, and we just have to be much more willing to take the lessons of others, take the learnings of others and see this as a collaborative act. So the, the mobilization, the dissemination, the scaling, the building of, uh, of practice so it's more widely available to others of things that are effective. I don't blame teachers for this. Um, I think the market is a horrible word, but it, there is a kind of education market at play. And it's not very well designed, you know, who is responsible to build the capacity of education in England? Mm. Who are you supposed to turn to as a head teacher when you think, well, I do need to find better ways of improving maths at year three or at key stage three? Who do you turn to? It's very hard. Our system isn't well designed to support that. It likes every now and then from the centre to tell you all to do something, Mm. quite a compliance model. But it's very poor at building capacity. You know, one of the weaknesses in our system we are not a good capacity-building system. Um, It's too fragmented and too episodic.
0: Well, as a local authority man, when we came from a local authority, some would say that that was the role of the local authority. And I suppose in 2011, that was the point at which we were starting to see or had already seen the move of um, guidance being given from the local authority.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting when you try and pin down exactly what were the... um, what was the rationale for that? Um, I'm very proud of what we achieved at Tower Hamlets. You know, even today, if you take a proportion of kids on free school meals, Tower Hamlets has by far and away the largest number than anywhere else in the country. Yeah. It's the first, every time you do it, 10% more than the nearest next borough. And yet it's achievements that both primary and secondary outperform the national average. That wasn't always the case. In 97 it was a basket case. There was a change in the community, in the teachers, in the local authority, in the local system to become a improving system and you see many systems like that you know the whole story of London is very interesting mm. there's a London effect but also the local authorities worked with that effect in the grain and yet in other places you didn't see the result you do need in my view there's no system in the world that doesn't have some sort of intermediary level between individual schools and the national effort Yeah, things happen in places places are really important to who people how people see themselves and what they identify with and at practical levels, it's really important that public health and that apprenticeships and training are aligned to education, for example, and they all are organized around place. So, this idea it's a national thing with 20 odd thousand individual entities just milling about, maybe gathered under 1,500 new entities called MATS, I, d- I don't understand. We have building blocks, we have a history of a, a structure of how we govern and manage this country, and we've not worked with that, and that yeah, has huge. Uh, capacity and uh, and uh, meaning for people I still think if you talk to a teacher who teaches in Liverpool it means something that I'm from Liverpool and these are my children this is my community compared to a teacher who teaches
0: in rural Hampshire Mm. place matters and so I want to ask you touched on the 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 toolkit the famous or some might say infamous toolkit um, which can split opinion in some parts of, of the uh, research space or, or education more broadly. What role has the toolkit played in the EEF story? And what do you have to say in response to those who might criticise the toolkit or meta-analyses more broadly?
1: So there's a huge risk with meta-analysis or with the synthesis of meta-analysis because you're bringing together bodies of knowledge and, of course, it's just the sum of how good they are. So, you have to make lots of judgments and calls on the quality of the evidence that you're assembling, um, which our team independently at Durham do. I I think, notwithstanding some of the questions, we could go into that in detail. But to me, the idea when I did my PhD, you literally read article after article or book after book and assembled it for yourself. That seems incredibly cumbersome and Impossible to imagine that a teacher would do that um, in and amongst their work. All, all, all the toolkit does is bring together um, and gather the knowledge. So we start from what we know. Now, there's huge caveats. You always, absolutely, have to go under the bonnet. You have to understand these are averages, and underneath the average of you know all sorts of yeah. wide um, variations. You know, and um, and so there's lots of caveats with it. It's a starting point for a conversation, but it's much better to start a conversation from what we know and from an information source than to start a conversation either from a hierarchy, I have this job, therefore I know more than you, which isn't necessarily true, or from, um, um, from ignorance. So I say, there's a throwaway remark, if you're not starting from evidence, what are you starting from? You're starting from a combination of your own story and your prejudice. Now, I'm not saying your own story is not important, but the collection of knowledge we have when you cast the net across the the uh, the community of teachers internationally of what they've learned about a, a, a consideration around the way to teach the value of phonics in early reading. Seems to me to be a perfectly valid and proper way to start a conversation about that question rather than how I feel about it. Yeah, absolutely. That's all.
0: <coughs> and uh, actually, we've always thought... In our office, someone once mentioned that um, the idea of having uh, toolkit top trumps as a conversation starter—you could have, you know, strength of the evidence or yeah. cost or you know, months of learning again—and it is, I feel, a, a starter for. 10. It's all
1: it is, yeah. and 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 the, and, that, and that point you've made is really interesting. was the toolkit is not about what works; it's about what worked, about what happened, what what was the impact, what was the cost, what's the strength of the evidence. It's trying to create a language and a framework for democratic conversations about ideas and education. Yeah. And it seems to me, um, and by the way, critics, great, you, you, this is constantly being debated, it should be, we don't, there's, you know, there's. it's really important that's it's debated and that it's, con, that it's contested. That is very, very healthy, so I have no problem with that.
0: And is teaching now a more evidence-informed profession and assuming that you'll say yes, how do you know? Well, I don't think teaching
1: should... Um, I like that phrase, informed. I think in the end, um, you must always take responsibility for the children that are in front of you and that you must use the best of what you know to make the best decision you can make next. I don't think the evidence should tell you what to do. I think it should guide and support your thinking. I think evidence, et- te- education is more informed. I think a good example would be um, evidence-informed. Uh, It's a bit political, this example I'm going to give you. Um, About two years ago, there was a sudden debate in England to consider um, having more grammar schools. Now, the response to that debate, I thought, was thoroughly proper. There was evidence, there was discussion, there was questions, the data was analysed properly, and, and not even whether you want to take one side of the debate or not, that one happened then, move off the table but there was a proper consideration of evidence rather than it being a um, just an emotional response to the question. Um, I think the way that people think about the, um, the deployment of teaching assistants has been greatly informed by the evidence. I think things like the early careers framework that the DFE are rolling out now, we see a much clearer presentation of the evidence. I think the new framework for inspection shows you that the evidence has been thought about more deeply than ever before rather than the particular... Interests or misses of one inspector over another, chief inspector over another. So I think there are a number of signs that we're becoming more evidence-informed. Will, will it ever be just become a science? Of course not. You have to have the room for the politics for all that kind of stuff. But more informed, definitely. Because of the EF? No, because of the EF as because of the community, because of the the the. the much broader agenda, we're we're a tiny bit of a big agenda that's happened. I think it's interesting that the politicization and the structural considerations and the ideology that um, I think got uh, very hyped up in the the English education system say 10 or 12 years ago, Mm -hmm. weirdly created a space for people who wanted it to be more rational and thought about, and we were we're part of a, a coalition that's jumped into that space. Yeah. There are many really really important people who have made as much contribution as we
0: have. But who not to underestimate the the body of evidence that's been gathered, like you say, through the 200 RCTs. Yeah. Did you say? I mean, yeah. that's that's pretty huge. Um, you touched on this earlier about where do schools' head teachers turn to for advice and guidance? What do we know about the capacity for schools to respond to the challenges they face? Where do they turn to? Who can they turn to for good advice and guidance, do you think, now in the current climate?
1: I think that's a really important question. So the individual school, for me, is the um, essential unit of change. Notwithstanding schools sit, sit, sit in partnerships and communities, and I'm a big fan of all that, but actually the school... Um, is a very powerful concept in societies around the world. And it's a very important concept. And a school, you know, Dewey used to talk about a school as basically three things. A school is what you teach, how you teach, and the kind of place you are. Now, the what you teach and how you teach are very susceptible to an evidence analysis. Um, The order, the scope, the range, the challenge in the curriculum. I I like the debate about the curriculum. But that has to be married with a debate about how. The balance between didactic or experiential the mm-hmm. balance between groups of kids all that sort of stuff so, 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 so these are very susceptible to evidence and then the, 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 the kind of place you are is quite interesting because that's, uh, that's more uh, from the sociology I mean, that's more about the chemistry that's more about your context the, uh, just the dynamics of the adults and the children in the space at any time the story, the history what's happened if there's been a tragedy all these things affect the culture of the school but this sense of personality and place is really important and you want, as often as, much, as often as possible, that they take responsibility at that level for the decisions they make. Unfortunately, and the evidence could come in, and schools could really drive decision-making at that level to create the very best school for the best outcomes, the highest standards for the children they serve. But unfortunately, what happens in England is schools' um, responsibility can sometimes be abdicated because you have too much accountability. So at a distant level, without re- necessarily that much reference to your context, an expectation or model is dumped on you. Or um, you're chasing um, ever moving goalposts in some of the, I don't know, um, accountability framework, one to four, one to five, this subject matters, this subject matters, these are the high stakes subjects, these are the, you're running around trying to chase accountability frameworks. So how do we get an intelligent accountability framework? That cherishes and nurtures schools to take full responsibility of their kids in a way where they own uh, the decision making around the use of the evidence. So I think it's hard to really, really use the evidence mm. if you're um, if you're under a lot of pressure from the accountability framework. You mm. tend to yeah. kind of look to that, look up rather, you know, yeah. than out. So. Um, but more and more schools, and I think the accountability framework is improving in England. I think it is becoming more intelligent. That isn't an oxymoron. You can have an intelligent accountability system. And, um, and that's improving. And schools are beginning to then ask questions about, well, what is it we want for our children? What is the kind of experience we want f- you know, for this particular group of children in this context? And even, you know, we want great outcomes for them, but what else do we have to build? And use the evidence to inform that. But
0: I think it is tricky. A very quick answer to this question. Sorry. You sound like you sort of occupy the sort of centre ground. You're not, you're not all about um, the scientific method. Um, I don't know if I'm right in, in sort of saying that. But do you think that in where conversations in education could become quite polarised, that the EF sometimes is seen as being very scientific in... Yeah, a, in sometimes. I think,
1: I think that's because of the redressing of balance. So we, we had to fight the corner or fight the case for RCT. You know, my point is that there have been a dominance of qualitative methods now we we like mixed methods so we had to argue hard to get the numbers in um, but we um, so I think part of it was reclaiming and rebalancing the system so yeah. we were seen as being that way we are but we do really believe in the numbers as being important but yeah. as well as the story yeah and that's where the Good. process study matters as much as.
0: Okay, if you were made Secretary of State for Education uh, for the day, and you could make five changes, what would they be? Um,
1: I definitely want to make the change that the focus became families and children and childhood. I don't. I think education um, is vital, but I. I've never quite understood why we lost the sense of children and families, I mm-hmm. think childhood is a broader question, I think childhood is under a huge pressure. Mm-hmm. So I, um, one thing I'm going over to do after this is chair the new foundation, the new fund looking at youth violence with even, uh, even more money, with the same model though. So I think childhood is an issue, I'd like to see families in childhood, I'd make that my priority.
0: And the importance but, of early years? Presumably. Uh,
1: then I'd focus on early years, yeah. I think we haven't yielded the benefit of the fantastic Huge expansion of early years provision in this country in the last 30 years. We haven't yet yielded that. I'd like to focus on quality, professionalisation, the pay and the resources for that workforce. I think it's underplayed and under-understood. Um, I think there's a whole lot of things that I'd make a decision that we don't touch and we'd leave alone. As I say, I, t- I, I genuinely believe that our best primary schools are just about the best in the world. And I'd like to keep out of lots of things. I'd like to draw some red lines and say, we're not going there. The government is not involved. That is not our, leave that alone. Where I would lean in though is key stage three I think i don 't know what, I think we struggle to understand what key stage three is for so the whole shift to two three year Stage, I think we need to revisit the value and importance of that particular phase of life and learning of the movement into secondary of puberty and all that kind of stuff around emotional development of children mm-hmm. as well as skills and then I think the the biggest scar we face apart from the gap and I think it is an absolute scandal is that the the half of our children who don't go to university, their post-16 provision, I think is appalling. I think the whole thing is geared to select and identify children for A-level. And they're what I call route one. And actually, notwithstanding the fees and all that kind of stuff, that's not a bad route in this country. Here we are in our small island with three of the best universities in the world on it. The other group, I think it's terrible. I think it's a lack of clarity. Mm-hmm. I don't think we prepare them properly for the economy. And I think there's this whole set of issues about the, um, the post-16 experience for the non-A-level group.
0: Yeah. I'm going to ask you two more questions. What are you going to do next?
1: I'm going to do a number of things. I'm not doing anything full-time. This is my last full-time job, he says. Yeah. Um, I'm going to chair
0: the... you going to have seven part-time
1: jobs. Well, I'm going to chair... I'm going to chair, moving into chairing, whatever. Is that work? I don't know. I'm chairing the Youth Endowment Fund, which is this home office resource, which is looking at how do we prevent young people getting involved in violence and crime using the same method of evaluation, of research, of all that. Um, And we've got a fund, uh, a very chunky fund to look at that. So I'm interested, is that susceptible to the question? A massive social issue in my view, a great challenge. I'm doing some work in Australia in early years. The world's largest not-for-profit is in Australia running something called Good Start, which runs 800 early years settings across the country and Mm -hmm. working on early years provision. Um, I'm doing some work on edtech startup with Learning by Questions, trying to work out if we can support teachers uh, to give immediate feedback to release the burden of of, uh, of marking and support planning in a way which technology working alongside, never instead of teachers. And finally, I work with a I do some work with global schools groups around the world, looking at the development of schools and education more broadly.
0: Just quickly to follow up on the um, on the youth endowment fund. How do the policies of these of this sort of what works network, do they join up or are they joined up? Is that what you're going to try and... Yeah, well,
1: that's the endeavour to do more joining up. Right. I mean, you know, for example, we sent a load of kids on a programme we were doing looking at um, climbing Snowden and Commander Joe's coming to your schools to build leadership and resilience. Now, that would absolutely be something you might want to ask the question. And what did it do for the kids who were at risk of getting involved in crime? So these are the same children in the same communities in the, you know, where we can join up, we will. This goes back to my point about childhood. This is all about, you know, you achieve well in school when you feel safe and secure and you have a kind of disposition to learn. And the idea that you separate this off from uh, living in fear at risk in dysfunctional communities or families is kind of silly. So we're trying to work out how do we use the evidence to think about the way we support childhood. Um, because in too many cases, not all, but in too many cases, there are issues around social policy in England relation to families and children isn't as good as it should be compared to many European countries.
0: Okay, and Professor Becky Francis is the incoming Brilliant. chief executive um, joining in, in January. What advice do you have for Becky?
1: Oh, I don't need to give Becky advice. Uh, Becky is, this is an absolute joy and gift for the EF. That this is perfect this is going to turbocharge what we do we we couldn't have found a better and more qualified person than Becky it's just fantastic that Becky's going to do it it's just going to shoot the whole thing along in my view
0: well I'm going to draw it to a close there um because my train was delayed by an hour (laughs) and (laughs) a half and you've been absolutely great in in doing this in essentially half an hour it's going to be no difficulty in editing this podcast so Thank you very much. Thank um, you very much. Best of luck for the Brilliant. future.
1: Brilliant. Thanks again.